It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. I was so happy to be contacted by Janalia Macbeth after Tammy Silvers had given her my information. Janalia is a quilting author, speaker, and thought leader. Jan's system for cutting, storing, and using scraps evolved into her wonderful book, Scrapstastic Quilts. Janalia, I am so glad that you could be with me today. I'm thrilled to be here. It's so much fun to talk to you. Let's get started with your life. Where were you born and raised? I was born in the Atlantic City Hospital. So I grew up in South Jersey. And in hindsight, we were really the middle of nowhere. (laughs) I was born in 1980. So I grew up with all of those pastel calicos that were so popular in 1987. In fact, my first quilt was that pastel-y purple and that mauve pink and that dusty blue. Oh, yeah. I'm glad the fabric industry has gone a long way since then. (laughs) And I'm thinking, that would be pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a special childhood memory? Probably my most treasured childhood memory is one of my earliest. I was maybe a, a toddler, maybe a little younger. And I can remember sitting on my mom's lap at the sewing machine. She was sewing on the singer that my dad bought her on their way to college. And I can remember being sleepy and ready for a nap. And when I got tired of watching the needle go through the fabric, I would lay my head over just a bit. And I could look around the corner and look in the motor on the back of the machine and watch the blue sparks in the motor. Oh, wow. There were sparks. Yeah, they're supposed to be. That's the the motor running properly. Huh. That's the bushings. Okay. And the magneto going around. I'm a little fuzzy on the, you know, how the electric motor part works, but something in that neighborhood. (laughs) So you could see that in her machine. I could. Another favorite childhood memory of mine. I was probably about three and I had always had a collection of fabric scraps to to play with. And my mom gave me scissors and I was allowed to like hand sew and cut little Barbie clothes and fold and cut doll clothes. But I pulled out my bag of scraps the one time and she had taught me how to make a bag. And she and my dad, it was evening. They wanted to sit on the couch and they wanted to watch TV. And I wanted to sew. So I did. I found my scraps and I laid out my bag and I went over to the sewing machine and I made a little, just a little bag, you know, hem three sides of it. You know, I was three years old. I made that. This day, my dad still carries it with him. Oh, really? Yeah, he now, still has it. Did they know you were on the sewing machine? Yes. Yeah, oh. I got permission. Oh, okay. And they were like, well, she knows enough. It's fine. Yeah. And it was. It absolutely was. That was what I consider to be the start of me sewing. Uh-huh. 
from there, I went the 4-H route. In those days, you'd be in kindergarten to start 4-H. I did all of the 4-H programming for years and years and years. So everything I did initially was very garment-oriented. So a pair of shorts, so a skirt, so a whatever. But I'm competitive by nature. And so I always wanted to be the best, have the most entries, do the most. So by the time I was nine, I had pushed myself to get to the point where I could tailor a suit. Wow. Made myself a wool suit. Yeah, that was the summer after third grade. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I'm blessed and cursed with a fantastic memory. I just trying to see this little third grader in a suit. Yeah, it was cute. It was a, a pencil skirt and a bolero jacket. And it was 100% wool because there was an extra competition that if you worked with wool, then you could enter this competition at the state level. So, of course, I went for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was purple with black, little black floral patterns on it. My fourth grade teacher was very impressed when I wore it to school the third day of school. <laughs> I bet she was. <laughs> yeah. Where are you now and how did you get there? Well, I'm in the Poconos now, which is about a three-hour drive from where I started. And I met my husband in college. After we graduated, we went looking for a job. We found one in the Lehigh Valley, and it was good enough to move for. But living in the Lehigh Valley is expensive. So we always say we live in the Lehigh Valley, but we sleep in the Poconos. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we started out in a little town called Pomerden, which if you're on the East Coast, Blue Mountain Ski Resort is like the hub of Palmerton and what keeps that town alive. But we got really, really tired of listening to the ambulances on a Friday night because we lived on the only road between the ski resort and the hospital. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, we would measure it. There were seven ambulances every 15 minutes. Wow. So you didn't watch TV on a Friday night in the winter. Hmm. So nine years ago at the bottom of the housing market crash, we saw that as the perfect opportunity to upgrade our house. And so we went looking for a house that we loved even more and moved sort of due east in the Poconos. We're now in a little town called Sailorsburg. If you're coming north from the Lehigh Valley towards the Poconos, we're the first exit in the Poconos. <laughs> <laughs> we're just barely in, but we are in. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what style of house you found. The first house we bought was built in 1869 and then was gutted and renovated in 1927. We purchased the house from John Prokop, whose mother and father purchased the house as newlyweds in 1927. He had come over from, I think, the Ukraine in 1925. She came over in 1927. They got married. They bought the house. They gutted it. So we had knob and tube wiring everywhere. <laughs> Crazy umbrella wiring where the only electric in the house came down through the chandelier in every room mm -hmm. and then branched out to the wall sockets from there. I spent, oh, probably the first eight or nine years of our marriage patching plaster continually. The windows were still original to the 1927 renovation. And so when we moved here, I was like, I want sheet rock walls, I want Anderson windows, and I want Pink Panther installation. So I live in a house now that it was fairly typical 1987 construction. 
there are still a few places where the 1980s wallpaper linger, but not many, not many. <laughs> In my spare time, I do quite a bit of house restoration stuff. We just sold our first house, the one over in Palmerton, back in April. And so I put my quilting business on hold last year while the house was vacant and spent the year refinishing it in order to put it on the market and sell it. Yeah. So lots and lots and lots of house fixing stuff. That sounds like a hobby. (laughs) A hobby, uh, calling, I... I'm not quite sure how to stop fixing houses. (laughs) I just finished restoring my bedroom in this house. So I now have hardwood floors, which are my first love. Mm -hmm. I am very prejudiced against carpet, particularly if it's in my house. I judge all carpet to be dirty. So (laughs) room by room, I've been going by and replacing it from carpet to hardwood. But if you go back in my earlier pictures on Facebook, when I was first starting my quilting business, I'd show pictures on my design wall all of the time. And it was my 1988 pink shag carpet on my bedroom floor. (laughs) My mind's racing with the dates you gave us. uh, (laughs) We live in a house that was built by my husband's great grandparents around the turn of the century, finished in 1903. So we have the plaster walls, but we have all hardwood floors and, we bought the house from my husband's grandmother. So, yeah, we ripped up all the carpet that she had put down. Um, <laughs> tack by tack by tack. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so besides quilting, what other crafts do you do or have you done? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of grew up doing it all. I did a lot of garment construction. I did a lot of painting in the 80s, 90s. It was all that acrylics on wood like folk Lancaster County kind of stuff mm-hmm. I did cruel I did embroidery I did cross stitch I did crocheting I did knitting latch hooking punch needle wool applique like you name it I've probably done it wow. at some point in my life I'm 39 years old and I have been sewing since I was three and sewing was not my only hobby If it was a kit that my mom started in college, it was fair game for me to pick up and practice on. My mom really, really gave me a well-rounded education. I can remember, I think I was probably 11 when we did boutique dyeing. At that point, we had already done tie dyeing. We had already done solids dyeing. And she was like, hey, I found my old boutique kit. Let's make boutique. So I did weaving for a while. I had a couple of little like... Fisher Price looms, which sound junky, you know, kid toy Fisher Price loom from mm-hmm. the 60s that was still floating around in the late 80s. But those were actually pretty decent. You could do some good weaving on those. And then if it was a 4 H meeting and all the kids were doing, then we would make ourselves looms on the cardboard of the cereal box just to get a feel for weaving. And then my mom had a tabletop loom with four sets of, what are they called? The metal things that hold the woof. I can't even remember the name of them now. But with four different sets, you could get some ridiculous number of different patterns in the weave before you even got into something as complex as changing the yarn. Just just the order of the stitches. Neat. Jack of all trade, master of none. (laughs) (laughs) 
That describes me to a T. Yeah. Who introduced you to quilting? My mom did. My great aunt had a hunting camp in Maine that she and her husband had purchased, oh, back in the 60s, I think. And she became a widow when I was about four. So Aunt Claire became a very integral part of our lives. You know, we had dinner four or five nights a week together. We did all of our vacations together. And the first year that she was a widow, she was fretting about this camp. We needed to go and check on it. So we went up for just a quick trip. And that turned into an annual tradition. I think by the time I was in first grade, my mom was running out of ideas for what to do with me. So when I was in first grade, we went up and I learned how to crochet. And the next year we went up and the project that she brought to keep me occupied was plastic canvas. And third grade, I was doing just some traditional needlepoint and cross stitch. I had a couple cross stitches with me as well. Yeah, I guess it was third, fourth grade when I was nine. She had picked up a book in the library about quilting and was like, okay, we're going to learn how to quilt. The camp was extremely isolated. We went up for a week, week and a half at a time. There was no electricity, no running water. And we hated the place with a wood stove. What are you going to do with a bored nine-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> this week, we're going to quilt. <laughs> I started quilting with hand piecing. And I did a wall hanging. There was an eight-point star. There was a Dresden plate. There was a grandmother's flower garden. And I don't remember the last one. Hmm. Pastel pink, 80s pink and 80s blue background. <laughs> I also did a second wall hanging that was, oh, this god-awful yellow-orange fabric against a black. It was bigger than a dotted Swiss, but it was a really 80s black polka dot fabric. It was half-square triangles on point, so the diagonal along the half-square triangle, when you hung it on the wall, was parallel with the floor. I didn't like that, so about a year later, I went back and remade it. It was a dark background with purple lilacs. Hmm. on it like wisteria the fabric Mm -hmm. at that point quilting became just one thing that I did in the rotation you know so I'd always do a quilt or two a year have something to put in the 4-H fair maybe if a cousin was getting married and I would make a quilt together Hmm. and it was all hand quilted at that point wow once we were home from Maine I switched over to machine piecing but I hand quilted all the way well Good grief. I guess I didn't start machine quilting until my daughter was born. I mean, I did a little stitch and flip in the late 90s. I did some straight line quilting also in the late 90s on a domestic, but I didn't like it as much as sitting at the frame and sandwiching by hand. Hmm. I think people that learn hand quilting first, they're just so good at that, that the machine can't compare. Yeah, I was snobby and looked down my nose at machine quilting until I had a toddler. And then I was like, I don't have time for hand quilting. Let me just get this done. (laughs) Once I started machine quilting on the long arm, first the mid arm and then the long arm, I really did fall in love with the process. To me, it's totally different than quilting. It's a different project than when you sit at the machine and piece. Yeah. Yeah, it's just got a different feel to it. I love it. It almost feels like a meditative state to me Mm -hmm. to just stand there and watch the machine as you freehand your designs. Cool. Mm -hmm. Describe your favorite quilt or quilt pattern. (laughs) 
Okay, well, those are two different things. My favorite quilt is one that is not in my house because I like to make them. I don't particularly like to live with them and care for them, <laughs> especially if I make like an heirloom. Somebody else can have the responsibility of living with that because if I live with it, the first thing I'm going to do is dump coffee on it. But my favorite pattern all time, hands down, my favorite pattern is the nine patch because it is such a simple concept. The creative possibilities are absolutely limitless with a nine patch. When I'm giving my lecture, I will pull out the most examples of nine patches and we'll spend the most time discussing and dissecting all of the different variations that are possible. The block itself lends itself to the one-third, two-thirds concept. And then it's structured enough that it always makes sense to your eye, but also there's enough freedom within the structure of the nine patch. You can always find a new variation that you never thought of before. Mm -hmm. How about a favorite tool? I would have to say my Martelli cutter because I'm young enough that I am looking ahead at another 50 years of quilting. So anything that is designed with body mechanics in mind is something that I'm interested in and a fan of because I anticipate doing this for so long. My first career, I was a professional musician as well, taught high school music. And so between all of the handwork and the handcrafts and the sewing and the quilting that I do and the house construction, and being a musician, it's just a given in our family that arthritis and repetitive motion disorders are going to be a factor at some point, and it will affect everybody's professional career. So always and forever, I am always looking for ways to minimize the damage because I'm not looking at the next 10 years. I'm looking at the next 50 years of quilting. Mm -hmm. What it does it forces your hand into a position that's natural. It does take your brain a little while to learn how to convert from the rotary blades that you normally use. But once you get used to the new hand position, you get used to how lovely it feels on every joint from your fingertips to your shoulder. You can feel the difference of how it feels when you work with your body in alignment the way it's supposed to be. Huh. Yeah. But that's the only piece of equipment that I am fussy about. Literally everything else is just whatever I can make do with. I just realized the other day that I've never had a new sewing machine in my life. I have always had hand-me-downs and cast-offs. And my favorite is a machine that's simple enough that I can go after it with a screwdriver myself. Hmm. I have a gamble from the mid-80s. There's no computerization. There's no stitch regulation. And I've rebuilt the thing from scratch, from the ground up three different times. And I only called the technician in for the first time. Wow. After that, it's just too expensive. Most recently, my husband and I redesigned the wiring harness to bypass the load balancer that ran the light that's on the machine and replaced the stitch regulator. And what the heck, it's in my basement. Nobody's really going to see it. So we held it together with zip ties. <laughs> It's not pretty, but it works. It absolutely works. I'm a big fan of what I call dirty tissue machines, machines that I get for cheap or free. And 
I don't emotionally invest into my machines. If they work and they run good, I'm pleased with them. If they stop working, I take them apart. If I don't quite get them put back together again, well, no harm. It didn't work before. I took it apart and I can always get rid of it. But usually I can fix things. And if I can't, then I run to my husband and go, help. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, usually, usually he can rescue me if I get into a bind. But my primary machine is a Janome Gem Platinum 720, which is basically a B machine. It's a lightweight machine that's designed to throw it in your suitcase and truck off to the local quilt shop for the sit and sew or on retreat for a weekend or to the local quilt guild meetings for their sew-in day. It's not meant to be an everyday machine, but it's been almost 12 years that I've been sewing on this one. I snitched it from my mom's collection. (laughs) (laughs) She lent it to me for a weekend and I was like, "Mm -hmm, I'm not giving it back. (laughs) But I love it. It does have some computerization in it. I try not to poke those when I take the machine apart, but I will dig in as deep as a mechanic will when you take it in for your annual or your biannual servicing. The Gem Platinum has really never left me down at all. And there were times, particularly when my daughter was like three, four, five years old, when I would sew three days a week for 15 hours a day. And yeah, another day or two or three in that week of four plus hours a day, five hours a day, 10 hours a day. So it's decent. It's a decent machine. Wow. Now, has your daughter taken on sewing like you did, or is she not interested? You know, I never intended to teach her sewing. I just had no intention. She was planned. She was very, very planned. When we were in college, we knew we wanted her to be born when I was 27. And we knew that when she was born, I was going to stop working. Check, check, check. Did all of the things on time as we planned. And the plan was always for me to be a stay-at-home mom, which was amazing for the first six weeks when I had my maternity (laughs) check. And then when that maternity check stopped showing up, I made a really, really shocking discovery. Apparently, a whole bunch of my self-esteem was tied up in that paycheck. And when that paycheck went away, I went, oh, who am I? What am I worth? You know, like, what good am I to society if all I'm doing is feeding a baby and cleaning the house? And so there was a lot of emotional wandering at that point. And in that time period, my mom said, hey, my quilt guild's going to the AQS show. Jump on the bus with us. Let's go. I was like, Mom, I don't, I don't do that anymore. I gave up sewing. I don't do that. I burned out with all the sewing for my wedding. And like, I'm an adult. I don't need that validation. Just come with me. I want to show all my friends the new baby. It's like, fine. I'll go with you, but I'm not going to buy anything. I'm not going to buy anything. Mom, I'm not going to. Oh, I spent like $300 that day. <laughs> don't tell my husband. <laughs> But I went home and I looked at this mountain of fabric that I bought and I went, well, I guess I'm quilting now. <laughs> what happened was I started quilting again because, oops, I bought all that fabric. And 
as I was quilting, what I found was finding the time, even if I was just sewing a two and a half inch square to a two and a half inch square in a day while I chased the baby, I felt valid. I felt like I was still an adult. I felt like I like still had a sense of self because I could take time for myself to do a thing that I loved. So as soon as my daughter could sit up, that meant that I didn't have to wait for nap time to get my sewing done. So she would sit on my lap while I was sewing. I sewed some pretty crooked seams in those days because my primary focus was teach the kid how to keep her fingers where it's safe to keep her fingers. Sort of unintentionally, I programmed her to sew, but I always thought, nope, 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 it's totally up to her. Well, when she was four, the one day she came to me and she's like, mom, I want to learn how to sew. So I said, oh, okay. Um, Do you remember how to run the machine? And she's like, kind of, maybe, no. She couldn't reach the pedal and she wasn't comfortable when I rigged up a pedal on a booster so she could reach it. Mm-hmm. So with the Janome, you've got the stop start button. So I pulled the foot pedal off, slowed the machine way down, gave her the stop start and handed her a pile of scraps and said, okay, this is how you do the layout of a four patch. You good? She goes, I'm good. So at that point, my sewing room was upstairs. So I went across the hallway to my bedroom and folded laundry, left her to her own wow. devices. Yeah, she did pretty good. Some of those seams were half an inch at one end and inch and a half at the other, but she made a little four patch blanket for her baby doll. And then it, it sort of fell into the habit of she makes a quilt every year. And the following year, she was getting ready to enter kindergarten and she had made a quilt out of a layer cake and she wanted to quilt it. Well, I was working on my gamel at that point, but again, she was in kindergarten. So we went to my parents' house for an extended visit and my mom has a mid-arm, which she sits at a rolly chair to use. But for a five-year-old, like it's the right proportion. It made a long arm for a five-year-old. So she went and she long-armed. And again, same thing. All right, let me get you started. I'll log it down for you. Here you go. And off she went. So she started long-arming at five. That's so neat. If you want, I was so enamored with the brilliance of my child because, well, I think she's the greatest kid on the face of the planet, that I took a video and I uploaded it to YouTube. So if you want to see it, about 30 seconds long, the first footage you see her long arming and the second video clip, she goes back and she tells you all of the designs that she was making with the thread path. Oh, how cute. So what's your favorite part of the quilting process? anything but binding. (laughs) (laughs) I can do binding and I'm fine with it. I'm just very lazy. So I will often crank out my bindings by machine, which friends and fellow quilters yell at me all the time. I don't love the process. And at this point, I've been quilting long enough that if I don't love it, I'm not going to spend a terribly large amount of time doing, doing that. Usually... What happens in the last couple of years is I calm my mom into doing them. She sends me any quilts that are too big to fit on her midarm, and I long arm them for her. So, I mean, it is a nice trade-off. Oh, good. Yeah. Tell me about your worst quilting experience. (laughs) I was so hoping you would ask me that. Let's circle back and talk about my book for a minute. Uh I wrote a quilting book. I wrote the book by accident. I was trying to write a blog post 
And well, then it got long. So I figured it would be a series of blog posts. And about three weeks in, I went, oops, I think I wrote a book. And the subject of the book was basically how to make a few small physical changes in your sewing room to encourage you to have better behavior with your scraps because you wind up having a lot of scraps. And unless you are as prolific as the amazing Bonnie Hunter, chances are at some point your sewing space is going to get overwhelmed by those scraps. So the idea was to teach a simple system of how to deal with your scraps so that they don't become too much. And the book teaches you the system and it's fairly simple. Mm-hmm. Limit the amount of storage space, pre-cut your scraps into usable sizes, and when the bins are full, make a quilt. It's pretty easy. Well, my mom and I talk about it all the time. And to be fair, I do make some really, really ugly quilts because I view scrap quilting as my laboratory. And if I want to try out a design concept, I'm going to try it with scrap quilts. And sometimes the results are amazing. And sometimes the results are just awful. (laughs) I was talking to my mom the one day. She said to me, oh, Jan, I love your book. I would like to do your system. But I don't think I can do your system because I would need to sort my scraps by color. I need a bin of blue scraps and I need a bin of red scraps and I need a bin of yellow scraps. I was like, no, 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 mom. The point is to reduce the amount of size they take up in your space. You don't want to expand the size. She said, no, no, no. If I put them all together, I would wind up making quilts like yours. And I really need my quilt to be pretty. (laughs) I was like, mom, just because I make ugly quilts doesn't mean you have to. So I said, look, I'm going to prove it to you. I will make a quilt that is just blue and white. And you'll see, it's going to be gorgeous. This quilt had, I think it's something like 3,000 pieces. This quilt was huge. And all of the blue came out of my pre-cuts. I added the white so that it was unified. I call that focus fabric. And according to my rules, you can add up to 60% of your quilt as purpose-purchased fabric. Because it's your quilt, you get to make it look however you want. So it was about 50-50 blue scraps versus white. And I mean, there was everything in here. There was 80s blue. There was batik. There was 1860s reproduction. There was Harry Potter novelty fabric. There was Anna and Elsa novelty fabric and Olaf's floating wrap. You name it, there was blue in this quilt. It's huge. It's a large king-size quilt. And each block is probably close to 30 inches. I mean, it's just enormous. And I got to the point where I had sewed all of the half square triangles together. So I've finished the first step on this quilt and it is epic and huge. And my sewing buddy came over for the day because we were going to have a sit and sew. And she's very kind. She brings me Dunkin' Donuts every week. (laughs) But she decided that we should rearrange my sewing room. I'm always up to try something. Sure. So we rearranged the sewing room. And we wound up with the two desks facing each other so we could chit-chat over the sewing machines. Well, there was nowhere good to put the ironing board. So we set the ironing board to my left and her right, right at the end of the machines. And then she bent over to plug in the iron and hit the ironing board with her hip, which then dumped my 
extra large pumpkin spice Dunkin' Donuts coffee all over all of the pieces of the quilt. Oh, no. There were four pieces that didn't get hit, and they were half square triangles. Oh, so I scooped them up. I ran for the bathroom, and I threw them in the sink, and I immediately started to run cold water on them. And it was a soggy, soggy mess. And as the sink is filling, I'm looking at this going, well, if this doesn't come out, I guess it's going to be a beige and blue quilt. (laughs) She and I ironed the pieces dry. We ironed for 10 hours with the two of us. Came back the next day and they were still damp. So over the next two days, I ironed them all again. Then I went back to constructing the quilt. Oh, wow. Fast forward another three weeks, I finally have all of the blocks ready to go. I lay them out, and I am three blocks short. (laughs) Back to the cutting board. I cut some more. I sew some more. I lay it out. Oh, look at that. I have one extra. (laughs) (laughs) So I tossed that aside. I finished the quilt. It was amazing. It was magnificent. I don't know what I'm going to do with that extra block, but there it is. Six months later, warm weather comes. I go to put the fan in the window. I pick up the fan off the floor, and lo and behold, behind it, I find a stack of units. (laughs) So I took the block and the leftover focus fabric and made a wide border and took those units and put them as sort of half a border until I ran out of fabric. And there it is. That part's not quilted. Both of those quilts travel with me when I give my trunk show to prove that, yes, even though I make ugly scrap quilts, you can, in fact, make pretty scrap quilts out of my system. Oh, neat. (laughs) (laughs) I actually gave that quilt away a couple of years ago and realized that I missed telling that story so much. So back in February, I cut out another one. Wow. And I finished it last week. (laughs) (laughs) And now I have thrown out that magazine. I am never doing that quilt again. Twice was enough. (laughs) Can you describe why you make quilts instead of another hobby? (laughs) Because I have to. No, there really is a compulsion to quilt. Some of it is self-defense. If I didn't quilt, I would have way too much fabric in my house. But most of the reason that I quilt is just because I love it. There's actually brain science reasons of why you love it. The process of choosing the colors and picking the colors and making the quilt gives you a feeling of control, but also having made the choices of sift and sort and pick the fabrics and pick the colors, that lights up the pleasure center of your brain. Every step of quilting is a constant hit of endorphins. And then on top of that, quilting is very repetitious, which becomes Mm self-soothing. And on top of that, there are so many micro steps. And every micro step that you complete is another hit of positive reinforcement. Ooh, I finished a thing. Ooh, I finished another thing. Ooh, I finished another thing. So what ends up happening is... The process is enjoyable in and of itself, but as you quilt, 
you are setting up so many positive response stimuluses in your brain that chemically your brain is just going to love quilting. When I describe quilting to people who don't quilt, they always say, oh, how do you have the patience if you don't quilt? It is a little incomprehensible. So I compare it to a jigsaw puzzle because everybody at some point in their life has done a jigsaw puzzle. And I ask them, do you remember the feeling of when you have the last piece of the jigsaw and you set the piece in place and then you just tap, 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 tap it until it sinks in? I'm like, oh yeah, I love that feeling. That's the feeling of every step of quilting. It's that same feeling of satisfaction, the same kind of satisfaction. Wow. Not that I thought about this or anything. <laughs> who do you make your quilts for, Ben? Anyone who will take them. <laughs> <laughs> Are they lining up? Uh, well, I only know so many people, so everybody's got some. No, um, before I started my business, Literally, oh, there's a charity that'll take quilts. Here, have some more. Because like I said, I love making quilts. I've been making quilts for 30 years. If I kept two quilts a year, that's 60 quilts. That's a lot of quilts in one house. I couldn't tell you the last time I only made two quilts in a year. Obviously, anybody who gets into quilting as a business has less time to make their own quilts than previously. But in the two to three years before I started my quilting business, I was averaging 26 to 30 donations per year on top of the quilts that I made for myself and my friends and, 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 and. So that's just an appalling number of quilts <laughs> to try and live with. So, yeah, if somebody's doing a raffle, oh, take a primary quilt. Uh somebody's trying to fill up a veteran's home with homemade quilts, here's a stack of scrap quilts. Some of them are pretty, some of them are not, but they'll all keep somebody warm. Mm -hmm. Now I find every quilt that I make, I sit down and I go, I'm not going to do anything with this quilt for my business. I'm just going to make it for me. I'm just going to have fun. I'm just sewing for me. And of course, by the time I get to the machine and I start sewing, the brain starts ticking over and I go, oh, I can design it into a pattern this way and I can do the marketing that way and I can take these pictures, put on social media that way. <laughs> the last five years, I've mostly kept all of my quilts. But what I do is I have two suitcases for every lecture that I do and the quilts that are associated with that lecture just live in the suitcase. The individual patterns, each one has like an overnight suitcase Mm -hmm. It's all prepped and ready for teaching workshops. So the quilt is in there, the patterns are in there, everything I need to teach the class is in there. So it's just a matter of, oh, this guild has asked for this lecture. That means I need this suitcase, this suitcase, and that suitcase. Ignore the other four. <laughs> Grab a stack of books and we're good to go. So my next question is, what are you working on now? I have revamped my sewing room again. This is probably the third time in the last year that I've moved all of the furniture. And in moving all of the furniture, I stumbled across a stack of, I call them strippy strips. It's a very, very technical term there. Mm -hmm. But for my system, I have a box of random width fabric strips. And I sew them together to make strippy fabric. Because that random width strip box is the one that tends to fill up the fastest. So I'm always looking for quilts to churn through that. So I came across this 
pack of strippy strip fabric I had constructed at some point, but it was prepped and ready to make a coins quilt. Or so I thought I made one coins quilt out of this pile a couple of weeks ago. And now I'm looking at the pile going, well, there's at least two other quilts here, maybe three. So today I was like, "Mm, today is the day. Let me just whack together this quilt. So it'll probably be craft size. And I wasn't satisfied visually with how it was looking because I had three columns. And so it was too skinny for how tall it was. And rather than whack the quilt off, I thought, oh, I'll add another row. But to me, four rows is just boring. So I took the fourth row and cut it in half and put half on each. So it's three central rows that are fat and two outer rows that are skinny. And I'm pleased. I'm not sure where the quilt's going. I'm growing it as I go. In fact, I just finished sewing the last skinny side on before I jumped on the call. But at the moment, I'm thinking a skinny border around it and maybe a wide border, depending on how much fabric I have. Are you ready for this? This is shocking. This is earth chattering. I'm running out of stash fabric. (laughs) Yeah, I'm almost out of stash fabric. I don't know if I have anything that's big enough or right to do the border. So I might have to go to the quilt store and buy the perfect fabric for a border for this quilt. (laughs) I've been trying to find the size of stash that is perfectly manageable. And I had just about gotten there but not quite. Like I was still dissatisfied with too much fabric, too much fabric, too much fabric. And then the pandemic hit and everybody I know went, I need a mask. (laughs) I went through my stash annex and got a little more picky about what was actually an eighth of a yard and what just kind of looked like it was an eighth of a yard. And I pulled out all of the pieces that somebody had done a little bit of applique out of. So the pieces were unusual. A lot of those were hand-me-downs from my stepmother-in-law because her primary form of quilting is applique. And so she winds up with all these oddball scraps and she'll make a scrap quilt maybe once every 10 years. But like my mom, she thinks it's much easier to just send her scraps to me, which I love because it's a lot of fun to have a free shopping trip in somebody's scrap bin. But I hesitate to say that out loud because then everybody wants to sound you their scrap. (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) Not accepting. Usually when people try and hand me their lifelong collection of scraps, I go, oh, have you seen my book? It teaches you how to handle that. (laughs) But from my mom and my stepmother-in-law, I will in fact accept the scraps because they are near and dear to my heart. And yay, fabric from mom is awesome. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I took a lot of the scraps that had some oddball shapes because of whatever applique my stepmother-in-law was doing and turned those into masks. And I probably went through a 15-inch stack of fabric, just crunched down into masks and out into the world. That's great. So, yeah, it was. It felt really, really good because I was like, I'm doing my part and look at the space I found. <laughs> So my last question is of tips. I know we've gone over several different things. Your book is a great tip. But is there a tip you would like to share? Yeah. I think it's very easy for quilters to forget we do this because it's fun. We get so focused on being 
computer neat with every single scene, especially as we get closer to retirement and we're looking ahead and trying to project and imagine what it's going to be like on a fixed income. We start to introduce a little bit of fear to our hobby. I have to save every scrap because I won't ever be able to buy fabric again once I'm retired. And we wind up with this compulsion to be neat and this compulsion to save every piece of fabric ever because we might need it. My biggest tip is to remember that quilting is our happy place and you can have the permission to be a little less neat if it makes quilting more fun. And you have permission to let go of that bin of scraps if you don't love scrap quilting. If you think you'd like to give it a try, it's a hoot. Go grab my book. But if it's really, really, really not your cup of tea, let it go and make space for the applique that you love, the paper piecing you love, the sachiko that you love, whatever aspect of quilting you love. That should be your priority in your space and in your time. Great. I love your book. I really, really loved your book. Thank you. Yeah. I made it with chewing gum and duct tape. <laughs> we've talked about your book, but I don't know if we've ever said the name of your book. <laughs> well, with a name like Janalia, of course I had to come up with a title that was difficult to pronounce. The title of my book is Scrap Stashtick Quilts. And you're working from your scrap stash. And the book is teaching you how to cut, store, and actually use your scrap fabric stash so that you have more time for the quilting you love and more space in your sewing room for the projects that you love. Because as much as we all sit around and look at gorgeous studios on Pinterest, we always go, wow, look at how organized she is. Wow, look at how much space she is. We don't go wow, look at how much junk she has piled on the ironing board <laughs> and getting on top of your scraps and staying in control of the chaos of scraps is one of the fastest ways I know of to get yourself that elbow room that you love in your sewing room. Because really, when we look at those gorgeous pictures on Pinterest, what we're coveting is the space. Space is our luxury. Yeah. I was excited to see it when I was talking to you about doing the interview. So I ordered it right away, and it came last Thursday, and I've read the whole thing already. So it's very quick to read, but yeah. it just makes me want to get into my sewing room and start organizing. So thank you so much. This is a great book. Thank you. That is fantastic. I wanted a book in the world that could work like a bedtime story for quilters mm -hmm. <laughs> and inspiration was definitely a big motivator for me so I'm so glad that you're enthusiastic about diving in and implementing this in your sewing room I'd love to see before and after pictures I dare you to take some <laughs> <laughs> we moved back to this house four years ago I've been wanting to take a picture of my sewing room and it's like when I get it straightened up, I'll take a picture and post it. And I still haven't done it yet. But it's just exciting because this was my husband's great-grandmother's house. It was her sewing room. And to think I get to sew in her sewing room is just fun. The windows in there have 
the angles on them so the sun shines in the morning. I get rainbows on my ironing board. And so it's just kind of a fun thing. But, yeah, I, taking that before picture is going to be hard. <laughs> you know what? It, it is a little hard the first time you do it. But the more you do it, the more you take those before pictures, even if you don't show them to anybody. It sort of acknowledges that I'm human and my stuff is always in motion. And you don't realize it's in motion unless you have a series of those before pictures, because there's always changes going on. There's always this pile moves from here to there and that pile moves from there to there. And Oh, wait, that project, I finished that six months ago. As cringy as it feels to take those pictures at the time, when you go back and you look at them, you go, oh, my goodness, I remember when I had like that many heaps of things. And believe it or not. There's a lot of cool aspects to taking those before pictures, because if I waited till my space was perfect to take a picture, I don't know that I would have a picture of my sewing space ever going back 30 years. I don't think I would ever take a picture. And yet when I look back and I find snapshots of the times when it was like three days before clothing judging and my mom's entire house was covered with pattern pieces and four different garments that I was working on at three different sewing machines. You know, there's so much nostalgia about how much fun it was to be in that creative space and be dedicated to those projects. Yeah. This is so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story. Thank you. It has been a delight. I love your podcast. I've been looking for something just like it for years. So thank you so much for stepping into the world this way. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm so glad you joined me for this episode of A Quilter's Life. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a review as it helps others to find the show? Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website or a Quilters Life Facebook group to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening.